Good morning, Redemption. My name is Tim, and I'm a member here. Today's reading is found in Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and it measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Tim. Well, church, if you would, let's pray together now as we look to God's Word. Father, we come to this story in the book of Ruth uh, with a handful of a little bit confusing details. It can be hard to see exactly what's going on here. But we ask that you would help us by your Spirit to see with as much clarity as we can this morning and to respond accordingly, that these words would truly change and shape the way that we seek after rest and redemption. As active participants, yes, but with restful hearts even, God, as we look and trust, look to and trust in you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as hard as it is to see no hope, of course, in life, it can also be very hard to have a kind of hope 
and not be quite sure when or how the details will be worked out. In many ways, our family right now, my family, kind of finds uh, ourselves in that situation. Uh, we are in the process of adopting a two-year-old little girl. Her name is Swara from India. Uh, but for the last couple months, the adoption process has basically been at a standstill. We've been matched for 10 months, and we've done everything we need to on our end, but the judge just isn't passing um, our, our case. And as we're sort of right at the finish line here, uh, there are also some major changes in India's adoption laws that could really potentially complicate how this will all wrap up. Uh, after our last four hearings, nothing has happened, and we haven't really heard why that is. Uh, meanwhile, the last three video calls we've scheduled with Suara's orphanage have, have fallen through. We haven't really seen her or heard a significant update other than a picture uh, or two for about the past two months. Uh, it's not as if we are hopeless, right? We've come so long, and we are very, very close to moving forward, we think. Uh, but if anything, the anticipation of this only adds to the weight and intensity of our longing. Uh, maybe you've been here as well. As you anticipate maybe engagement or marriage, or, or as you anticipate the birth of your first child, or as you anticipate a major move in life or, or a career opportunity you've been looking forward to. It can be really hard to know what do we do in those situations? Right? How should we live as we have this sort of weight of anticipation looming over us? Well, in chapter one of Ruth, we were introduced to two women who were recently widowed. Their names are Naomi who is the eldest, and then Ruth, who is her daughter-in-law. And after all the men in their family died, Naomi really could not see anything redemptive going on in her life. Uh, but for some reason, Ruth, who is not even of the people of God, she's a Moabite, she could. She did see something redemptive here. And so she decided to join Naomi in returning to Israel to see what would come. Then in chapter 2, Ruth just happened upon the field of a man who is qualified to redeem this entire situation. And we watched as Naomi discovered, well, maybe God is going to show her some favor here. And then here in verse 1, we see Naomi's journey continues. And she says, my daughter, speaking to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Uh, you see where Naomi's come here. It's a bit of a journey. Uh, and here now she has an idea. Now I'm convinced that this question she asked at the outset is meant to set the stage for the rest of the chapter we're going to look at this morning. Here are Ruth and Naomi anticipating their redemption. Now they can kind of see the dots the author's been showing us and they can kind of start to connect them. Boaz seems to be the guy here who will be their redeemer. And we're meant to wonder here, and sorry, they likely were wondering here like we would, but when? And how? How is that going to happen? And of course, there's also the question, but what if, right? What if Boaz dies too? And I think this is the question we're, we're meant to be struck with at this point in the book. In what sense should we seek after rest 
And in what sense should we not? Right? All of us are likely anticipating some kind of redemptive themes in our, in our lives. How should we seek after those? What is our role in seeking our redemption? What is God's role in seeking our redemption? And how, if at all, do the two connect and overlap? This is what I think uh, the author's trying to bring us into here at this point in the story. And so Bible's open. We're going to take a look through this passage. And the first thing we see, of course, is, is Naomi's plan for Ruth. Uh, she's clearly connecting some dots. She says right away, Boaz is our relative. So she, she sees how this could go here. Uh, she shares a plan. And again, we're meant to wonder, I think, is this a good plan? Is this a bad plan? Uh, is there something we're meant to learn here as we watch this plan unfold, right? First, Naomi points out that that evening, Boaz would be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now, a threshing floor is basically it's a hard surface, uh, sort of a landing place where all of the harvest would generally come to be staged before it's sent off and shipped and sold. And so if you were in this day winnowing at the threshing floor, what that meant is there's really no more harvest out there to winnow. You're kind of just picking up the final last pieces of the harvest. And so really we're supposed to see Boaz here wrapping up not only his workday, but probably bringing even the entire harvest to a close, which may be significant in that that harvest has really been a source of provision for Ruth and Naomi through the kindness of Boaz. So Naomi gives Ruth a set of instructions here. She sends her off on a mission to find rest. First, she tells her to wash up. And then she tells her to anoint herself, more than likely with a kind of perfume of some sort. Then she tells her, put on your cloak and then go down to the threshing floor. But notice she encourages her to go down in a kind of secrecy. She says, but do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking but when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, right? So kind of keep an eye on his evening from a distance. Watch where he's going and what he's doing. And then midway through verse 4, she says, Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. The, the, the most important thing I think for us to see here, at least first, is the boldness of this plan. See, it would not have been typical in this day for a woman to propose marriage to a man in this way, let alone a widowed woman, let alone a foreign widowed woman in Israel. So, so Ruth, for sure, is, is really putting herself out there here. And yet what we see in her response is, is just compliance. Verse 5, she tells Naomi, all that you say, I will do. And then in verse 6, she says, so she, it, it says, so she went down to the threshing floor and did, it says, just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And again, we're wondering here, is that good? Are we supposed to seek after rest in this way that they're going about this? Which I think leads to the encounter, of course, between Ruth and Boaz. Now I'm going to shoot really straight with you. I'm going to cut right to the chase. We want to ask and consider, what is all this about Ruth uncovering Boaz's feet? I know you're wondering that. I was too, even until like a couple days ago, okay? Uh, clearly, something about this story doesn't translate for us today. It's not, you just don't read it and say, oh yeah, that's what's going on, right? Um, and, and so there's a lot of discussion in scholarship 
uh, about what is going on with this uncovering of the feet, but primarily the question that's at the center of these debates is, is Ruth trying to be suggestive in this way? Is there a kind of seduction that's happening here? And is that what the uncovering of a sleeping man is kind of hinting at us, hinting us towards? Now, I'm going to argue that yes, actually, uh, Ruth was being even sexually suggestive here on purpose. I want to point out a few reasons where I think the text is pointing us in that direction. First, Naomi tells her to wash up and anoint herself, which probably at least means sort of make yourself attractive here in a kind of way. She also sends her to Boaz, notice, in secrecy, uh, presumably so that no one would see her going to Boaz, possibly because what might happen could be a bit questionable. She also then waits for him to be done eating and drinking. This is part of the plan when, quote, it says, his heart was merry. In other words, possibly because he might be a bit more likely to basically take the bait here, to, to bite and follow through with the plan. And then the phrase lie down and the phrase uncovering actually were commonly used in this day and age in sexually suggestive ways in this culture and this context. And finally, chances are, therefore, the fact that she uncovers his feet is more than likely a euphemism referring, we'll just say, to more than just his feet. I think that is probably what's going on in the text. And so, obviously, the more important and better question is, what in the world do we do with this, right? Um, if Ruth is being suggestive here, is, is the author trying to con condone that? Uh, what is the author trying to help us see or say even by including these details? What, what's the point of the story? And I think in large part, the point of the story comes into clearer focus in Boaz's response to Ruth. First, at midnight, he's sort of startled awake. He turns over, he sees her, he asks, who are you? Okay, so this is the first question, who are you? Now, before we get to Ruth's response, it's going to help us, I think, to back up a little bit. If you would, I want you to look at, with me at chapter 2 in verse 12. This is their first ever interaction when Boaz tells of the reputation of Ruth that he's heard about. And he said to her then, in their first interaction, he said, the Lord repay you for what you have done, namely in, in coming to Israel with Naomi, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So this was their first interaction, right? And he says, hey, I'm commending your worthiness. You have followed your mother-in-law to, to God's people. You've sought refuge under God's wings. That was the thesis statement of their first interaction, and then here's Ruth's response to, to Boaz that night at midnight. She says, I am Ruth, your servant, and then drawing back on that first interaction, she says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So here again in Ruth, we are back at this intersection between God's actions and our actions. Ruth is basically asking Boaz, would you be the man that God uses to give me the refuge I came seeking in Israel? You are the redeemer. You could do this. Will you do it? 
And again, if Ruth is doing all that Naomi has told her, knowing that this is a suggestive kind of seductive strategy, it could be that in saying this, she's trying to ensure that he redeems her. There is a kind, again, of of seduction happening here. And if so, which I think is probably the case, then we should see Boaz's response as a very loving, gentle redirection. And really, it is in this redirection that God begins the process of redeeming Ruth and Naomi. In response to this offer, Boaz says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. In other words, may you be blessed by the Lord. That is, this is not just about me, remember. Uh, this is about him. Ruth, we need to keep that in mind as we go about this. And may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. As in, I see where this is, is going here. Uh, and it doesn't have to go that way, daughter. Right? And he adds... You've made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. Now, chances are this shows us that Boaz was a significantly older man than Ruth. And and you might presume, based on those details, that this would not be the kind of man that Ruth would naturally desire to marry were it not for the need to redeem her mother-in-law's estate. And so he's basically saying here, listen, Ruth, I'm honored you'd even consider asking me Um, And it's very kind of you to ask me, rather than chasing after younger, more attractive men, all for the sake of of your mother-in-law and the legacy of her family, right? That kindness, he's saying, is even greater than the first, which was you coming to Israel with Naomi in the first place. Notice, Boaz is pointing out in this setting all the positive motivations that seem to be driving Ruth here even as he seems to be redirecting her from what seems to be the wrong approach uh, to seeking rest. And, And then he gives her this powerful reassurance. He says, and now, my daughter, first, do not fear. I will do for you all you ask. For, he says, all my fellow townsmen know you are a worthy woman. So again, my sense is that Boaz is responding to Ruth's very forward, suggestive proposal by first calming her fears. Do not fear. Then diffusing the situation. I I will do for you all that you ask. And then by appealing to her worthiness. For all my townsmen know you are a worthy woman. He is lovingly redirecting her proposal in a more healthy direction, all with this kind of heart of, of, listen, don't don't fear. Ruth, I I see the anxiety in you about this. Uh, You you don't have to do it this way. I I will help you. This is going to happen. But here, let's do it the right way. Which then leads us to yet another potential complicating factor, right? If you look with me at verse 12, Boaz says, and now... It is true that I am a redeemer, yet, he says, there is a redeemer nearer than I. Now, last week, we talked about these clan structures in the nation of Israel. These are basically clusters 
of extended families that were kind of bound together by a kind of alliance with one another. And apparently the hierarchy of these alliances would determine who actually had the right to redeem which family when. And so apparently if Boaz had redeemed Ruth and Naomi that night without consulting this man, then he would have been going around this other man, which would not be a worthy and right way to do it. He could have led to any number of conflicts or disputes even about the the, the estate. And so on one hand, this shows us, I think, that Boaz is not just concerned with his own interests here. He doesn't just want the estate and the young wife, right? He's going to go about this in a worthy way, even if it means he doesn't get it in the end. But it also means that after putting herself out there in this way, this may not go the way that Ruth wanted it to go. There, there is a really meant to be a kind of tension here. Is Ruth really going to go home empty-handed after all of this? But more than likely anticipating her disappointment and anticipating a, a sense of rejection here, Boaz gives Ruth a guarantee. He says, remain tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, this other man, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. He says, lie down until morning. In other words, rest. Rest, Ruth. And in the morning, he gives her a bunch of barley to take home to Naomi so that she won't be empty. And we have this final scene where Ruth returns home and Naomi asks, how did you fare, my daughter? The author says Ruth told her all that the man had done. Ruth shows all this barley that, that Boaz had given to her as a guarantee. And then we see, again, a noteworthy change in Ruth's trajectory in this book. Remember, back in chapter 1, she was bitter and hopeless. She could only attribute her suffering to God, that's all. And yet here, she's incredibly confident. She says to Ruth, wait, my daughter, wait until you learn how the matter turns out. In other words, don't, don't seek anymore. You don't have to be the one to make the matter turn out. Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Speaking of Boaz, of course. So apparently Naomi now sees both God and Boaz as redeemers who are worthy of patient trust. She's really come full circle, right? She has learned, I'm convinced, what the author wants us to see and learn in our passage today, which is namely this. The church, we can rest while the Lord works out the details of our redemption. We can rest. Especially when we start to see how God could redeem us, it's tempting, right, to grab for control, try to make it happen. After all, should we not seek rest for ourselves and the ones we love? But here we see, in a sense, how we should and should not seek after that kind of rest. Uh, more than that, in, in our passage, we get a glimpse into the Lord's tender patient care, his loving kindness for us in guiding us in his sovereign will on the right course, even as we swing and miss in our attempts to seek after rest. The truth is, church, this is good news because we will all seek after rest in the wrong ways. 
We will power up and try to make it happen. Some of you may even be weary and burdened this morning trying to live in precisely that way, which is why we need to hear the the loving, tender words of, of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 11, who says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Church, Christ himself is our rest. He is our ultimate redeemer. He will prove himself faithful, and in the meantime, we can rest as he works out the details of our lives to his glory. So, knowing this redemption that lies ahead for us in Christ, how should we live now as we anticipate it? This is the question I want to consider as we apply. I want to share three things to remember when we are anticipating rest and redemption. The first thing to remember is this. Number one, uh, we don't have to make our rest happen. We don't have to. That weight is not on us, and frankly, we, we can't. I think we can all relate, again, to some kind of of anticipation of rest or redemption. Maybe you're still waiting for that major life circumstance to change, and and it's supposed to change, and and you're hopeful it will change, but you just don't know when or how. Maybe you're hoping your life or or a particular relationship would just improve, and and you could see how it could improve, and and you think it really should actually start to improve, but in the meantime, you, you just don't know when. Or how it will. So how are we supposed to live in that tension? And one of the points of this book certainly is that we are active participants in this redemptive process. We saw last week we're meant to go to the fields, absolutely. But what we saw last week is we're also meant to go trusting, right? So it's important, I think, to discern at what point have we taken too much weight upon ourselves in our anticipation of rest. Uh, At what point, when, how do we know if we're trying to make our rest and redemption happen? And I think there are at least two indicators of that in our passage here. The first indicator is that our planning replaces prayerful dependence on God. Our planning. Now, we've all been here before. Uh, When we get that email or phone call that changes everything, leaves us unsettled in in one way or another, and as a result, we spend the next three weeks, it seems, on our computers doing a bunch of research and planning. Uh, We spend uh, the next three weeks sort of in our own heads rehearsing important conversations that are coming or or on the phone, uh, having coffee, bringing others into our anxiety and our planning when what we really need instead is, is to be still, is to rest, is to allow the Lord to guide us into his redemption in his timing and put one foot in front of the other as he does. Listen, if you know me, I'm a, I'm a planner. Planning is good. I'm pro-planning. Uh, we should be wise and we should think ahead, but we should never plan at the expense of prayerful dependence on the Lord. We can plan, absolutely, to sort of remove unnecessary barriers to our rest and redemption. That's fine. But we should never plan as if it is our plans that will make our rest and redemption happen. 
We don't just need a good plan as part of what we see in this story. We need the Lord to make our rest and redemption happen. We'll only see that if we have a restful heart. And another indicator of, of this possibility that we're trying to make this happen is when our urgency overpowers our patience. Uh, Ruth had been working in Boaz's field that harvest. Uh, she and Naomi had been reliably eating all season, but at a certain point, he's winnowing at the threshing floor. The harvest is wrapping up. Ruth, you got to wash up and get this done. Seems to be maybe what's going on here. And praise God, Boaz responds to this in, in, in loving kindness. He absorbs her angst. He, he redirects her urgency. He teaches her this lesson in a very gentle way. And praise God, the Lord is the same with us. Very gentle in this correction. And I do think part of the point here is that Ruth and Naomi's urgency will not be the thing that leads to their redemption. If anything, their urgency, you could see in about three or four ways how it could have caused some serious problems. Uh, she, she could have been seen on the way to the threshing floor and questioned her worthiness and what was going on. Uh, they could have cut in front of this other guy and caused all kinds of disputes and conflicts over the estate. Their urgency could have caused problems here. In the end, we will see it will be God's care for them through Boaz and through Boaz's worthy ways that leads to their redemption. And in the same way, God's plans and purposes for our lives will not be sped up by our sense of urgency. If anything, one thing we see in Ruth is that God moves slowly, oftentimes even painfully slow for us. First, he brings a famine in the land. Then we get scared and decide to run from him and his people. Then we start to settle in with the Moabites. Our sons get married. Then all the men in our family die. We're forced to go back home. Then we send out our only daughter-in-law who came with us for who knows what reasons out to the fields, unsure how it will go. And then, maybe then, at that point, we start to see a glimmer of hope. Well, maybe we have some redemption to be anticipating here. Maybe this could go well. This is often how the Lord works in our lives. So we should be active participants in this quest for rest and redemption. We should go to the fields. Amen. But when we're resting in the Lord we will be able to seek redemption with patience and prayerful dependence on him, not just with planning and urgency. So the first thing we see is that we do not have to make our rest happen. And second, we see it matters how we seek after our rest. It matters how. Uh, you've probably heard this phrase, the ends don't justify the means. Right? This story, I think, is a pretty good example of that. Uh, an end is basically the ultimate thing we're after, whatever it is. In this case, for Ruth, it's redemption. And the means are the things we do to try and get to that ultimate end that we're after. And the point is basically, listen, there are wrong ways to seek after right things. Just because we get the right thing we're after doesn't mean that we've necessarily gone about that in the right way. And as our world that we live in becomes less spiritually inclined 
And people reflect far less often on things like ultimate spiritual ends in, in, in life. Uh, it's really tempting to embrace just what's called pragmatism, which frankly is the exact opposite of our application point here. It basically is, it doesn't really matter how we seek after what we're going after. Basically, if it works, do it. If you get the end result you're after, whatever, right? And as a church, I think this might look maybe something like this. Hey, if we, if we get this building, more people start to come. They give us more money. We gain a certain kind of credibility in the community. Hey, this is great. It's working. We must be doing it right. God is doing his redemptive things through our redemption church. Maybe. Maybe. But what we need is the wisdom to slow down and inspect the means. Is the Bible being faithfully taught? Is the gospel being clearly proclaimed according to the scriptures? Are people truly being called to repent of their sins and profess their faith in Christ? Are we really committed to following Christ together as a member of his body? Is that what we're doing here? Uh, when, when sin surfaces in the life of our church, are we addressing that? Or are we just kind of looking the other way because it's hard or because it might get in the way of our organizational success? It's not just enough in our case to have a kind of organizational success. And frankly, that, that is not the end we're after here. Uh, we need to seek after a kind of rest and redemption that only the Lord can give us, and we need to go about it accordingly in the ways that he would have us. Of course, this is true for us in our personal lives as well. Uh, when we are wronged and we are anticipating a kind of vindication from that wrong, that may be a, a fine desire even to want vindication, but it matters how we seek after it. The fact that we've been wrong does not give us the freedom to seek vindication however we want. Uh, when we are longing for a specific kind of blessing, whether that be a, a relationship or a kind of opportunity in life, and we are anticipating the day when God would give it to us, that may be a good thing we desire, but again, it matters how we seek it. The fact that we have a good longing does not give us the right to seek that longing however we want. See, when we're off target with our means in life, our actions, often I think it, it, it's because we have lost sight in a way of the ends. I think it really helps to consider what is it that we're ultimately after here. I think part of our human condition is we're tempted to zoom in and presume that the ends we're after has ultimately to do with us and, and our lives, which in a sense, sure, that's in view, but it's certainly not the central piece of it. We do this all the time. But next week, I will say, by the end of this book, we will see Ruth and Naomi may have simply been after their redemption. But next week, we will see crystal clearly that God has been up to something far, far greater than just that. God here in this whole story has been after the redemption of Israel. And then through that, beyond that, the redemption of all nations in the person of Jesus Christ. And so it helps to remember the end goal of our rest and our redemption is not just a better life for us. The end goal of our rest and redemption is to know and enjoy this God. He is the end we are ultimately after. And when we remember that he is our ultimate end, 
It will change the way we think about means along the way as we seek his rest. So uh, we don't have to make our rest happen. Um, Two, it matters how we seek after our rest. And three, most importantly, God is never sleeping is, I think, the word. He's always working. God is never sleeping. He's always working. Uh, When we're anticipating our redemption, we can almost see how it would come. It's tempting to almost sit back and rehearse the worst-case scenarios, is it not? Okay, I can see how those dots would connect, but what if, right? In Ruth and Boaz's case, what if the harvest is done and Boaz doesn't care about us anymore? We're off to the next thing. What do we do then? What if Boaz dies like all these other Israelite men seem to be dying in our lives? What if? In our scenario, it may be, well, what if this relationship I'm in doesn't work out? What if it doesn't lead to marriage? And what if I spend the rest of my life alone? Uh, For our family right now, it sounds like this. What if this adoption process drags on for another year and then something unpredictable happens, it all falls through, and we're just devastated and crushed in the wake of it? As a church, it may feel for you, uh, what if we move our gatherings to Brookfield searching for a building and and a home, which is great, but there are all kinds of other changes we weren't anticipating along the way? What if that's how it goes? In other words, you can see we have this temptation to wonder, essentially, what if God is not in control here of these details? And what if all of it is going to fall apart unless we act, right? What I want to do is just bring us to a psalm, Psalm 121. If you're here and you've got a Bible, open up to the middle. Somewhere around the middle you'll find psalms. And I want to look at Psalm 121. It's just the perfect, I think, word for us in light of Ruth. I want you to picture this psalm being read as sort of there's a shot of Ruth sleeping that night on the threshing floor just waiting for her redemption to happen that morning. Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forward forevermore. Church, this is the God who's come in human flesh to be our Redeemer. He has that kind of heart for us and this kind of desire to give us rest. And if we truly know this God, man, Jesus Christ, then we can rest no matter what life throws at us. I appreciated Greg's prayer for for the leaders in our nation. Uh, If the far left continues to grow more secular and hostile to even a basic biblical worldview, and then the far right embraces fear and deception and compromise to accomplish its ends, We can rest, even then, knowing that God is not sleeping. He's working. If the conflict in our marriage just keeps intensifying, it starts to feel like there's no way forward, even then, 
we can rest. We can be sure that God is not sleeping. He is working. If that worst-case scenario happens in your life, if we, we fail miserably and we lose everyone's respect, even then, we can rest knowing that God is not asleep. He's working. He always is. Now, of course, all these scenarios would be incredibly difficult to navigate. I, I don't mean to downplay that. I, I don't think the book of Ruth in any way downplays the hardness. I think we can relate to and identify with the stress and the strain of these characters in this book. But I think the point is this. It may seem like God is sleeping. What are you doing, God? Famine in the land? How are we supposed to eat? All the men in my family have died? What am I supposed to do? <laughs> I've got to go back to Israel with my tail between my legs, hoping that people remember me? What are you doing? Are you asleep, God? Church, I'm telling you, by the end of this book, we will see, particularly next week, we will see this God has never been sleeping in this story. He has always been working in every one of those details. And so we can rest as he sorts these things out in our lives. Maybe this morning, as you've heard this and looked at this passage, uh, you feel just like you've blown it. Uh, you've been running around sleeplessly trying to make your rest happen in all the worst possible ways, and now you're thinking, what do I do from here? Where do I go next? Thankfully, the answer to this is here in our passage as well. God himself is calling out, I'm convinced to us, in the pages of this book through Boaz, through Naomi. He wants us this morning to hear him saying, remain tonight. Lie down until morning. Wait, my daughter, my son, rest. And in the morning, I will see to it that you are redeemed. Church, we don't have to live in fear, consumed by the anticipation of our rest and our redemption. When will it happen? How will it happen? What is the plan here? We can rest together as God works out the details.